Today, uh, I, I'm going to be talking about uh, some recent research with Congo Basin hunter-gatherers. I've been fortunate enough uh, for the most of my adult life to be able to live with uh, one of the few remaining uh, hunter-gatherer groups uh, sort of in the world. So the groups I'm going to be talking about today, uh, primarily the Aka of the Central African Republic and the northern part of Congo, as well as the FA uh, over here in the Demo uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. The Aka are net hunters, primarily net hunters. The FA are primarily uh, bow and arrow, arrow hunters. That, in terms of sort of ethnographic background about about these groups, that uh, very briefly they have particular uh, what I call foundational schema ways of thinking and feeling that pervade many different domains of life. The first one here in terms of they are fiercely egalitarian. Uh, they have a number of mechanisms, cultural mechanisms that promote uh, egalitarianism. So somebody starts to draw attention to himself or herself. They um, have a number of ways of teasing and joking in order to reduce that amount uh, of uh, uh, attention that one might try to draw to oneself. I mean, one of the things after many, many years, I sort of realized that the way of life that we have here is is very much different. There we're reminded on a daily basis of the differences. We get, you know, we have performance, you know, we have perform, performance evaluations, we have grades, uh, kids get smiley faces or, or not. We ever, somebody's always better or worse than others. We, and that's part of our daily life here. And among the hunter-gatherers here in the Congo Basin, that you, you're reminded in terms of how much everybody is equal. I mean, people do rank, um, but at the same time, they have cultural mechanisms by which they promote this egalitarianism. And so you have gender egalitarianism. This is a woman on the net hunt. She has a spear, she has a big knife, and she has a baby on the side. Um, also, uh, age egalitarianism, which generally means that you do not have respect for elders. It depends which way you want to look at it. And that in terms of another big foundational schema is that you have respect for autonomy. And this sort of goes with the egalitarianism that you do not intervene with somebody else uh, in terms of when they're doing something. So here you have kids with big machetes. Uh, and you do not intervene as they try these out uh, unless they hurt themselves or hurt others. Um, in terms of weaning, who decides when the timing of weaning? It's the infants, the children who decide when weaning happens, not the mother. In terms of where do you co-sleep? The children decide where you co-sleep. In terms of adults, that in when you live in an Aka camp, there are changes every day. In the, somebody leaves, somebody goes, so, and you have this respect for autonomy. Uh, the last part is that you have extensive sharing, and that's the part that I'm going to focus on today. The, the idea here is that these foundational schema, you may want to think of them as core values in the culture, that uh, they pervade many different domains of life. In terms of sharing, there's been a lot of research in, in anthropology and other disciplines about sharing child care um, in terms of maternal care, sharing food. But there hasn't been much research in terms of sharing information and, uh, and knowledge. And this pro-sociality and sharing are, are quite clearly part of human nature. And these three domains, from my perspective, likely co-evolved in human evolution. Just as one example, 
uh, that in, you know, we have a cooperative breeding hypothesis of Sarah here, but certainly that there is a learning that it's involved with parenting, so that these things pro- likely uh, co-evolve. The, I'm going to just talk about two topics today, um, allo-maternal nursing and teaching in infancy. I need that iceberg slide. <laughs> um, that we do not even have one article in terms of human allomaternal nursing. I mean, we know about seals and more about allomaternal uh, nursing in seals and rodents than we do in humans. Uh, so, if there are graduate students or others out there who want a topic, this is this is it. So. Um, in this particular study, we, uh, it's a very uh, exploratory study there where we had these behavioral data from focal follow observations, Steve Wynn and I, um, and we simply asked some empirical questions, how often does it occur, who's doing it, and what sort of context it takes place. A little dense here, but in terms of you know, how often does it occur, uh, the first sort of interesting result hit, um, here we have the FA here that I mentioned, uh, and the Aka, and then the, the neighbors of the Aka are the Ngandu farmers. Uh, but sort of the first interesting result here is that most all of the allomaternal nursing occurs early, occurs in early infancy. Um, here you have the majority of the infants receiving allomaternal uh, nursing. Obviously you have an enormous range by one year old, it's gone. Okay, so you have maternal nursing early, generally before uh, four months. The same thing for the ACA. Uh, and then um, by nine to ten months, it has decreased, and by one year of age, it's pretty much gone. This is the work of Paula, uh, Paula Ivy Henry here. This is the work of Steve Wynn, and these are uh, my data. Um, the other sort of uh, pattern here is that the, the Ngandu farmers, the neighbors of the Aka, they do not practice it because they have a cultural belief, uh, a particular cultural model in which they see that, that uh, if another woman nurses your infant, that it could get a taboo food and cause the infant to get sick and die. So that is a particular cultural practice in which they uh, do not practice it. Who provides it? Who provides allomaternal nursing? Generally, they're biological kin, genetic kin. It can be either paternal or maternal. I mean, not insignificantly, you have around 10, 12% getting that the allomothers are uh, not biological kin. Uh, But the interesting sort of result uh, to me, I mean, was that you have in terms of the allo mothers that you have a good percentage of postmenopausal women, okay, postmenopausal grandmothers. Uh, here you have postmenopausal uh, grandma um, uh, nursing an infant here, and so that there's a good literature out there about relactation, um, and. Uh, my wife, Bonnie, uh, who's also an anthropologist and nurse, started to test, and that the younger postmenopausal women clearly had milk, but as you get into the 70s, that was not the case. Um, in terms of some of the context of maternal nursing, mother availability, uh, when mother's out working, this is when maternal nursing is, is more likely, but they're also in among the ACA. This is three- to four-month-olds, 
that the mother's just right there nearby, and Alan Nursing takes place um, uh, by an, another woman here. Also, that uh, more Alan maternal holding, uh, you had more Alan maternal nursing, so that if an Alan mother held more, they also nursed more. Another interesting result from this very uh, exploratory study is that I went out and asked my friends working with hunter-gatherers whether or not allo maternal nursing existed in their particular in their particular group. So here you have all these different forager groups, and whether it was norm- normative means here that I'm sort of defining it as that most infants receive a good percentage of uh, allo maternal nursing. So 80, 90 percent of the infants receive allo maternal nursing. And one thing I should mention about the frequency. I discussed a little bit earlier that when you talk to the mothers, that the numbers are much higher. The mothers say that their kids are always allo-nursed, okay? Uh, whereas we don't always capture it because we only do 10 hours of, of observation. But the interesting result here is that, that the groups living in the tropical forest here were much more likely to be have normative allo-maternal nursing by comparison to the hunter-gatherer groups that lived in dry savanna, woodland, or, or desert. And the, the sort of result here, uh, sort of the question that Katie sort of mentioned, that in terms of the immunological or the uh, probiotic kind of potential, potential benefits of an allo-maternal nurse in a nursing in a particular environment where you have high prevalence of infectious and parasitic diseases. Uh, we, I, we also conducted this sort of cross-cultural study of anthropologists who, have, you know, who did general descriptions of cultures, and they may have described allo-maternal nursing. And when, in these particular instances, generally they describe allo-maternal nursing occurring in emergency situations. The mother's sick, the mother dies, the mother's ill. Uh, and the same thing is also true from what we call, we call these melt uh, kinship uh, cultures uh, where if you do, if a woman does nurse another, an infant from another woman, that that infant becomes part of that kinship system of that mother. Political economic inequality, this is wet nursing where you pay for, where the, the group in power, generally the upper class, the upper caste, the upper clan, uh, hire somebody in the lower groups to nurse for them. And the other sort of context is in colostrum, you have many cultures around the world that believe that the first colostrum is dangerous. The Aqaba do this, the Efe do this, the Ingan, all of them do this, that, that they express the colostrum into the fire because they, even though we talk about it here um, as gold, but um, liquid gold, but uh, here that in many cultures it is expressed into the fire. So that in terms of allo-maternal nursing, you have many factors that uh, are contributing to the diversity that we observe here. Uh, we were not able, there, is a, there are a lot of hypotheses about there, out there about reciprocity. Uh, here with uh, cross-nursing that we find here in the United States sometimes today, uh, we don't find, ev- the mothers are not talking about reciprocity. And also there's no evidence in terms of the stressed infant that, you know, uh, infants that fuss or cry more get more nursing from others. There, there is no evidence of that in this partic- in our particular studies here. I also should mention here, since I just sort of threw it in here, La Leche League, in terms 
does not promote uh, allomaternal nursing. They think it's potentially psychologically and, and health-wise. It's not uh, beneficial. And, and, and obviously, this is a cultural belief um, in terms of a view of allomaternal nursing. The next topic I just quickly like to talk about, this is a sort of ongoing research, and this is teaching in infancy. In terms of sharing knowledge, that there's this sort of debate um, between social cultural anthropologists and cognitive scientists. In cultural anthropology, in cult- many social anthropologists say teaching does not exist in small-scale cultures. Um, here, this is a recent book, The Anthropology of Learning. This is a, a chapter by David Lancey. He starts out the absence of teaching. Uh, here you have the cognitive sciences, on other hand, saying teaching is a natural part of, of ability of humans. Okay? You have Gergely and Sebra talking about one type of teaching, which they call natural pedagogy, that you find in infancy, uh, where individuals use what they call extensive signals, pointing, looking at, use of personal name, use of mother ease, face-to-face kind of interaction to draw attention to particular knowledge uh, for, a, for an infant. So this debate, you have this debate between social anthropologists and cognitive scientists about the existence of teaching. Uh, but teaching is very important for human evolution. Tomasello, and in a number of different publications, Tomasello and Kruger and many others, identify teaching as potentially a very key factor in terms of human evolution in terms of you have three, fa- three sort of factors, teaching language and accurate imitation that led to the high fidelity, okay, sort of precise copying and learning of particular skills, knowledge, technology, and that higher fidelity stays, if you have higher fidelity, it stays in a population longer. This staying in a population longer increases the chance for an innovation to be introduced. This leads to what is what is really defined in terms of, we have many animal species that have culture, but what humans have is cumulative culture, and that this, these particular factors here contribute to, uh, to this cumulative culture. You have cumulative culture, you have a, an increased number of socially transmitted traits, and this increases the importance of teaching. Okay, so you have this sort of feedback here. So it's not just a matter of a debate, it also, um, this social anthropology, cognitive science, but it's also very important for understanding in terms of human evolution. The definition I'm going to use of uh, teaching comes from evolutionary biology, and it simply means that somebody modifies his or her behavior uh, for the benefit of another to learn a particular skill or particular knowledge. Okay, there There are many definitions of teaching out there that include a theory of mind. I'm not using that particular definition in terms of uh, teaching. So basically, uh, Kim Bard asked us to make some naturalistic videos of uh, one, one-year-olds in the field. So I did that. And I, so I have 10 hours of video of infants that I made. And then I'm reanalyzing these 10 hours of videos in terms of trying to un- understand whether or not there's any evidence of any type of teaching. Okay. And the first one here is that 70% of the tapes have evidence of natural pedagogy as defined by Gergely and Sebra. And again, natural pedagogy is when you're using pointing to draw attention to something for an infant. So 
So a very important task among the Akas to take wild yams out of uh, wild yams out of the out of the uh, forest. So you have a girl here with a knife, a little girl, one year old. The dad's pointing to a particular rock, being an example of a yam. He's doing a little bit of demonstration. What's really amazing I like about this sort of thing is you have a two and a half year old who also seems to know natural pedagogy. <laughs> okay. But the idea is to learn to extract, okay? To learn to extract. So another type of teaching, natural pedagogy is just one type of teaching defined by Gergley and Zebra. Uh, another one that I'm um, sort of defining is called opportunity. Opportunity scaffolding. This is when an infant. Here, we're, again, you got to remember this is one-year-old. I don't know if you've been, you know, have one-year-olds doing this kind of thing, where you give a one-year-old a knife or a machete, um, and then you sit on the side. Okay. So this mother here has given uh, the infant a knife. The mother gave the infant a knife. The infant's cutting some kernels off the corn. And then comes around and sort of modifies her behavior to help the learning of the infant. Uh, another type, in terms of teaching, that we—that's really—that's really we could not measure. But the Aka and, and many hunter-gatherers turn their infants out as soon as they put down. They're facing out towards others, and so you do not have. As Kim mentioned, this is very much face-to-face interaction with the caregiver, but you have lots of face-to-face interaction with others in the camp. Uh, there are certain things you do not find uh, very often. Verbal instruction is minimal uh, in teaching, infant teaching. You do not, the, the Aka here do not have mother ease. We say it's a human universal, but you do not find it with the Aka. So in summary, teaching occurs okay, regularly in infancy. Um, in at least 100 gatherers. Uh, you have various types, and it's used to transmit a broad range of skills. It's not just, it's not just machetes and knives. They're, they're how to hold a baby. A variety of other skills are also transmitted. Uh, teaching is often low cost and opportunistic, and in infancy, they're mostly genetically related to the infant. And acknowledgments. Thank you. Thank you.